Well, over the next few weeks, uh, we are going to jump into some chapters in 1 Corinthians and talk about bodybuilding. And uh, I'm sure that you can tell by looking at me that this is a topic about which I have vast experience. You don't get these three-inch biceps just from sitting around. I'm going to tell you that right now. Uh, now, we're going we're gonna to jump in a little bit different bodybuilding. But by the way, I just have to tell you, my... My poor family has been cursed with, uh, especially my youngest daughter, has been cursed with her father's sense of humor because I sent out an email about this and said, this is where we're going to be doing, starting a new series called Bodybuilding. And I just, I just had to read you her response uh, because it, you know, inserts the first name. It said, hi, Autumn, and went on. So I got one back that said, why, hello there, Blake. Thank you so much for reaching out to me. I, too, am a bodybuilder and would love to offer you my services. I can show you the ropes at the gym if you would like, or... I could even come to your church and have a show and tell of my muscles. I do have one rule due to COVID restrictions, no touching the beautiful biceps, just looking. I think this would fit perfectly with your sermon because I am a woman. Anyways, let me know what you think. I can attach a pic of my muscles so you can get a glimpse of what you would be showing your church congregation. I don't want to make anyone feel self-conscious if their biceps don't measure up to mine. Have a muscle-tastic day. I look forward to hearing back from you. Best wishes, Autumn Muscle Switzer. So it apparently just kind of gets carried on uh, throughout the family. But we are going to jump into our series on bodybuilding. And I hate to tell you and Autumn and anybody else, nobody with the last name of Switzer is really going to be doing any serious bodybuilding. But we can do it spiritually. And we can talk about how to build up the body of Christ. And that's what we're going to jump into today and uh, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 today and we just decided we're just going to jump right in. We are going to dive in today with a uh, topic that could be rather divisive that is a fairly controversial one in our culture because it addresses the role of women and relationship between women and men and roles in the church and those kinds of things. And so let me just, I'm going to borrow a, a phrase. I was, uh, did a lot of research leading up to this message, read a lot of different people, listened to a lot of different pastors. Uh, one of the, uh, an excellent message I listened to, by the way, uh, was from the Village Church. Matt Chandler preached on this back, I think, in 2017. Would definitely recommend uh, that as an additional resource. But one of the things he said on the front end, and he said, I was like, oh, I'm going to steal that because this is true for me today. I feel exactly the same way. And that is, by the time we finish today, some of you are going to think my last name should be Cleaver. And some of you are going to think he's gone liberal. That, that's, just, that's just a fact. Uh, because we have such strong opinions a lot of times on very wide spectrum of things. And our goal is simply to, to do the best we can to allow Scripture to speak to itself. So let me just give three ground rules before we jump into our passage and read it together. Here are three ground rules when it comes to addressing this topic, or really, for that matter, um, anyone similar to it. But in particular, when we're talking about this, number one is this, that we need to realize that this is a subject that is non-essential for salvation. Okay? Um, th this is not one of those topics where if we disagree that we are not able to fellowship together. There are some essential issues that we agree on, right? We need to agree on the basics of how we come to faith, of who Jesus is, that Jesus is God who took on human flesh, he died on the cross for our sins, was physically raised from the dead in victory over our sins. The only way for us to be made right with God is through placing our faith in Jesus, 
believing in Him, trusting in Him. Those are the basics and the essentials that we must believe. And, and, and so that's kind of core belief. That's our identity. There are many other issues in the Bible. They're still important because they're in Scripture, so that means they're important, right? But they're non-essential. And so that means that if we disagree on some of those non-essential items, we can still fellowship together. We can still lock arms together. We can still move forward together. And certainly this is one of those. So that's the first ground rule. The second one is this, is that we must allow the Bible to speak for itself. That's the goal, always. Allow the Bible to speak for itself. We, we are people of the book. If you've been around our church for long, you know that we place a high priority on Scripture and allowing God's Word to instruct us. And so our goal is to allow the Bible to speak uh, for itself. Listen to me on this. We must never adjust what, what, what we, we, we must, let me back that up. We must adjust what we believe to what Scripture says. We never adjust what we want Scripture to say to what we want to believe. Okay? So, so our goal in attacking any type of, of Scripture passage or any type of difficult topic that's in the Bible is to say, what does the Bible say about this? And then let's adjust our thinking and our belief to what Scripture says. Here's the third ground rule. And that is that we must approach this topic with humility. I'm going to tell you right on the front end that that my understanding of what Scripture teaches on this topic could be wrong. I, you know, I may not have a full understanding of this. Now, there are reasons why I believe that I do understand it correctly, and I'll be sharing those with you, but I think we need to have humility on issues like this where you can make a biblical argument and a biblical case for different viewpoints. We need to approach it with humility and understand we might not have all the answers. Therefore, if somebody else comes at it and, and says, well, based on my uh, study of Scripture and what I'm reading, this is the conclusion that I've come to, then we need to have the humility to acknowledge that, that we may not be right, but at the same time, we need to know what we believe and why. All right, enough introductions. Let's jump in. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And actually, I'm going to start in verse 2, verse 1. I is, well, verse 1 says, follow my examples, I follow the example of Christ. I think that's kind of a connector between what he said in, in chapter 10, and maybe goes more with chapter 10 than, than chapter 11. But then in verse 2, really, this is where, uh, where we want to begin. I praise you for remembering, me, for remembering me and everything and for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head uncovered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or, or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and the glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything 
comes from God. Judge for yourselves. It is, pro is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Do not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him. But if a woman has long hair, it is for her glory. For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. Now, some of you may hear that, and, and maybe if you've not heard it before, studied before, you might think, that's the most misogynistic thing I've ever heard. And, and it could sound very offensive. Uh, and that's why I kind of joke about we're just going to jump in week one to this. Um, and I think we need to acknowledge that this is, in, in our culture, in our society, that this is a, a passage and a teaching that, um, you know, for good reason kind of uh, can, can, can create some strong emotions. But I think it's important for us before we jump to conclusions about things that we need to understand what's going on here. One of the things, you know, we said a moment ago that we want to let the Bible speak for itself. Here's, here's one of the principles that, that is really important when it comes to interpreting Scripture is that the Bible can never mean today what it didn't mean then when it was written. So part of our goal then is to understand, okay, what is, what is really at the core of, of what he's getting at here? Let's see if we can do the best we can to place ourselves within that time and that culture and understand um, you know, what, what's going on here. And so the main issue that is being addressed here is, that, is decorum and worship, but specifically head coverings or lack thereof. And that was a big deal at that time and in that culture of you know, a man would not have his head covered, a woman would have her head covered. And so really, here's the, what, what I think is the main issue here when it's talking about a woman not covering her head while praying and prophesying. We'll get to that in a minute, the fact that she is doing that. We'll, we'll get there. Um, but really what's happening, I think, is that, that there is an attempt to remove the distinctions between male and female. You know, it's this, hey, there shouldn't be any difference in how we approach this. And, and that's kind of what, what he's getting at. And so I really have two main things, two main takeaways today. And the first one is, is this, that we must affirm and value the distinctions between men and women. I mean, that's, that's important from this passage, that we affirm and value the distinctions between men and women. In these verses, Paul talks about, uh, that, that he uses this word, head, Quite often, And again, that's one that, that we might look at that and, and, and think, well, that sounds awfully offensive. But let's back it up just a little bit and understand what he's talking about here. Because it says that the head of man is Christ. And then it says the head of woman is man. The head of Christ is God. That word head is really all important here. And it can mean many different things. Most of the time when the word is used in the Bible, it means this thing on top of our bodies. It means the physical part of the body called the head. But there are other times in Scripture, and this is one of those, where obviously it is not speaking in literal physical terms. The word head means somebody in a position of authority or in a position of leadership. And so when it says that Christ is the head of the church, it's saying that Christ is, is the one who has authority over the church. Now where it gets real dicey for us is when we start saying, now wait a minute, man is the head of woman. So, so what does that mean? And that's what we're going to dive into a little bit here today. Uh, but before we do, let me just, just point out the fact that Jesus being the head of the church, we need to ask ourselves a question. What does it look like for somebody to, to be the, the head over something, to have authority over? How does Christ exercise 
his headship in the church? And the answer is simple. It's through servanthood and through self-sacrifice. That's how Jesus demonstrates his headship over the church. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 5, it talks about Christ being the head of the church. And in that same passage, it talks about husbands leading their wives. That, that, that's where it says, you know, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. And then it goes on and talks about what, what that looks like for a husband to be the head or the, the leader of his wife. And it says that men are to, to give up their, to lay down their lives just as Christ gave himself up for the church. That's what headship looks like. And so we're not talking here about something that, that is to be used in uh, an abusive manner because unfortunately some have taken um, not just this passage but other places in Scripture and they have twisted it to demean and to uh, in some cases maybe even abuse women to, to use this as an excuse to, uh, to, to, to try to you know, just kind of hold them down and, you know, men are superior and all that. And hear me very clearly, that is not at all, not at all what Scripture is teaching here. It's not at all teaching that, that a man is superior in any way to a woman. There's, what it's talking about is a distinction in roles. Both men and women are equal in God's eyes. And we'll jump into this further as we continue on. But equality doesn't mean sameness in roles. And so there is a difference in how uh, God has designed us to work together. Uh, but I do want to be as, as clear as possible in saying that both men and women are equal in God's eyes. There's not one that is elevated above another in any way. And as a result, the ministry of the church, the value of both men and women in ministry and even in leadership in the church is equal as well. Now, again, there are some different roles that we'll get into here in just a moment. Uh, but it, it, Jesus, I think none of us would, would argue, or at least we shouldn't, if our theology is correct, we won't. We would not argue that Jesus is inferior to the Father. And yet it says that the head of Christ is God. And God is Trinity. God is three in one. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all equally God. And yet even within that Trinity, they have unique roles. And even Jesus, as the Son of God, still submitted to the Father. doesn't make him less than the Father. It just means that that's, that's the, the, the roles that they were to take. And so uh, it's important for us to understand that when we're talking about this, that we're not talking about uh, one being superior to another. Now, let's look again at verse 8. Verses 8 and 9. This is where it begins to get a little bit, little bit dicey for us. And like, okay, what are we going to do with these verses? Well, we're just going to jump right into them. We're not going to ignore them. Verse 8 says, For man did not come from woman, but woman came from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Now that's one where somebody might read that and go, Whoa, 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 wait just a minute. As a woman, you're telling me that I was created for man. What does that mean? Does that mean that I'm just, you know, to uh, fulfill his pleasure and, you know, uh, cook his meals and do his bidding? Is that what we're talking about? And no, it's not. It's not what we're talking about, but that certainly is the take that some have had. In fact, even throughout church history, there have been many examples of those who have taken it this way, unfortunately. And I'll give you one example from a wonderful, wonderful person that every single one of us should be thankful that God sent him. And it's a guy by the name of Martin Luther. 
Martin Luther was the one that challenged the system and said that this whole process of, you know, of the church was corrupt. And, and he came up with this, this understanding of Scripture that we are made right before God. We're justified by faith alone. That was, that was all Martin Luther, you know, kind of read. So that's good. But let me read you something Martin Luther said about women. In fact, we have a quote to put on the screen here. This is what Luther said. He said, Men have broad and large chests and small and narrow hips and more understanding than women who have but small and narrow breasts and broad hips to the end that they should remain at home, sit still, keep house, and bear and bring up children. Now you can just go, if you want to. That was Martin Luther. That's the understanding that some have had throughout church history is to say, okay, a woman's role, you know, basically what you're good for, you, you don't have the understanding that men do, and so why don't you just stay at home and have babies and take care of the house and everything will be good. Don't believe at all that that's what we see in Scripture. So in order for us to, to kind of say, okay, how, how should we understand then what this means? What does it mean when it says that, that woman was created for man? Let's go back to the very beginning. Let's go back to the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 1, we see, in fact, I want to back up all the way to, verse, uh, to chapter 1, verse 27. It says, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Now, there's a lot of good stuff in here um, about creation and God's design and the uniqueness between male and female. God did create us male and female, but it also says that both male and female were created in the image of God, equally in the image of God. There is not one male or female that is more, you know, that bears the image of God more than the other. Both are created in the image of God, but there is also an order to creation. And the way that order worked was first, God created the man. God created Adam. He, he, he uh, allowed Adam to um, you know, be in charge of things. And, and he had perfect fellowship with God. And yet it still says this in verse 18 of chapter 2, Genesis 2, 18. says, The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable to him. So what in the world does that word helper mean? Again, does helper mean, you know, house cleaner and meal cooker? Or is there something more significant that that word helper means? And my answer would be yes, there is something much more significant that that word means because most of the time when you see that word helper, that Hebrew word that is translated as helper used, what is being used of is it's describing God as the helper of Israel. I don't think any one of us would have the foolishness to argue that God being the helper of Israel means that he is inferior in some way to the nation of Israel that he created. What it's saying is that God is to come alongside of Israel. He is her support. He is to be there to carry her through. And so don't view that as, um, as a, a, a negative word or an inferior word. I like what what Matthew Henry said. He was talking about the fact that Eve was created out of the side of Adam. A lot of times we think of it you know, as a rib, but literally what it says is it came from the side of Adam. This is what Matthew Henry, who has a commentary, he lived a couple hundred years ago, maybe a little bit more than that. Um, but this is what he had to say. 
He said, not made out of his head to top him, not out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. That's what it means to say that woman was created for man. Now back to, to verse 11. This is an important perspective as well. Back in 1 Corinthians 11 again. Uh, chapter 11, verse 11, it says, Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman, but everything comes from God. So God is the ultimate source. Everything comes from God, and, and, and we are, are dependent upon one another. What I believe this is teaching if you dig into this and you look at different views of understanding the relationship and the roles between men and women, is what is called complementarianism. In other words, that, that the, the man and the woman were created to complement one another. It doesn't do away with the distinction and roles between the man and the woman, but they are designed to complement one another. I like what, what Peter Kreeft said. He said this, he said, women really are superior to men at being women. And men really are superior to women at being men. See, what, what we are designed to do is to, to be who God created us to be. It's not that one is really superior to the other, but we're, we're superior at being who we are. And, and maybe the best way for us to, to dive into that further is to take a look at some different approaches. There are, are, are basically four perspectives from those who would identify themselves as Christian and, and would come at it from four uh, different categories of understanding. And so we have a little graphic that I, I want you to put up. Thank you. Put that up on the screen. The four things, feminism, egalitarianism, complementarianism, and patriarchy. On the two extremes are feminism and patriarchy. So when, when we talk about feminism, what we're talking about here is wanting to, to do away with any type, of, really, of distinction between male and female. There's gender fluidity there. There's, um, there's, there's distrust toward anything male. And so and here's the thing about all of these positions. All of them have some truth to them. It's just that the truth is sometimes overemphasized. Here's the truth in feminism is that a woman is to be highly valued. That is an accurate truth. But it is pushed to the point to where anything not of a woman is to be devalued. And that, that's, that's a problem. On the flip side of that, on the other extreme, is what we call patriarchy, which holds to um, you know, the importance of masculine roles, that, that God is revealed uh, uh, as masculine, that uh, the husband... And the father's the head of the household, that the men are to take a leadership role in the church. But, but where it goes too far is to say a woman is basically not to be involved in any way outside the home, pretty much. Kind of the Martin Luther quote, right? Just stay home and have babies and, you know, everything will be good. Well, in between those two then, between those two extremes, let's, let's start on the one that's, that's a little bit closer to... Um, Feminism, but not, not as far that direction, is what we call egalitarians. Egalitarians are not necessarily suspicious of male leadership as long as any role that a man can fill can also be filled by a woman. 
That, that makes sense? So men are okay to lead. It's just that every role that a man can have, a woman can have as well. That's basically maybe an oversimplification, but that's kind of what, what, what they believe. And they believe that this distinction between male and female leadership came as a result of sin and as a result of the fall. So when the Bible talks about, you know, in Genesis, and, and it talks about, you know, uh, part of the, the curse being your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. The argument that is made is, okay, this is a result of sin. That's why uh, things go this direction, and it wasn't part of God's original design. Now, one of the things that I like about um, many egalitarians is that they really do um, make a strong biblical case for many of these things and, and pulling in other scriptures and other places and saying, okay, here's what's going on here and this is the reason for that. And again, I would come back to this and say that if you study what the Bible says and come to that conclusion based on what you see in scripture, then, then more power to you. Uh, that's not the conclusion that, that I have come to uh, in, in studying this, but I think it's important for us to extend grace to one another, especially if we're approaching it the right way. So let's talk about for a moment what does what's, what's this other one? Complementarianism, which I believe is what is getting at here when it talks about men and women not being independent of one another, but both kind of depending on one another. Um, the thing about complementarianism that it, that distinguishes it from egalitarianism is that complementarians believe that there are still roles, certain roles that are designed to be filled by men only. Not all of them. There are many, many roles that are open to both men and women, but there are some that are designed by God to be fulfilled by men. And, and, and one of those is that the man is designed by God to be the leader of the home that he is to be a servant leader to his wife, to his children, and be the one uh, leading out. Again, when you hear leadership, don't think authoritarian as much as servant, but, but that's... And then also, and here's the key when it comes to, to our understanding of what this looks like in the church. And we're not going to have time to just... We, we could spend a lot more time on this, but I'm going to give you basically a quick summary of, of what this position believes and what, what we as a church where we have landed as well. And that is that there are a couple of roles within the church that, that the Bible says a, a, a man should take the lead in. One of those is the role of elder. When you look throughout scripture and you see elders, it's always um, talked about in masculine terms. Uh, that, that's the, the pronoun and the descriptive. And so based on that, and based on our understanding of the rest of what Scripture teaches, we've landed at that position that this is something that, that should be filled by men. And that that is in alignment with the belief that if a man is to be the leader of his home, then it does make sense that those in positions of, of kind of um, ultimate, I guess, authority, but servant authority of where the buck stops here, um, that, that that is men. The other one would be the, the senior pastor role, the one that is kind of responsible ultimately for the direction leadership of the church. Um, beyond that, there's a lot of room for women to be involved and to lead in a lot of different areas. And so I want to spend the rest of our time jumping into that a little bit because in this passage, it says that the, the, the issue here is a woman praying or prophesying with her head uncovered. 
Let me point this out very clearly. The issue is not that she's praying or prophesying. The issue is that she's doing it the wrong, with, with, with giving them the wrong message by not covering her head. And again, I would say that is very much a cultural thing. That is something, and, and you know, I know that we, I won't get too far off on that, but that's where the whole, you know, when you pray, you take your cap off because a man is not to have his head covered. You know, that's where that comes from. And that, that a man should not have long hair and a woman should and all that. I very much believe that those are cultural issues that were related to things that were going on at that time. But the greater, bigger issue is this, that there should not be a distinction. It shouldn't be a, hey, we're all the same and let's remove all distinction and, and, and roles. And so she is, the woman is involved in praying, prophesying here. Uh, but here's the second major takeaway then, is that we must affirm and encourage the involvement and leadership of women in the ministry of the church. Yes, there are a, a couple of areas that we would say we believe God has designed that to be uh, led by men, but there's also a whole lot more where we desperately need and depend on the involvement and leadership of women. And we see that throughout Scripture as well. So a few examples throughout the Old Testament. Uh, Deborah is an example from the Old Testament who served as a judge, was a prophetess. Miriam, who was the sister of Moses, was known as a prophetess. There were a few others in the Old Testament women who prophesied. You get into the New Testament and you see that there is a prominent role played by women in the uh, New Testament church, for example. I can't think of a much more significant role than this, but who was the first eyewitness to the resurrection? It was Mary. It was a woman. Now, in that time, in that culture, a woman couldn't even give testimony in a court of law because her testimony was not considered to be valid. And yet Jesus, when he's wanting the word to be spread about his resurrection, who is the first witness that he appears to is a woman. That's significant. And then you see throughout the rest of the church, in, in Acts chapter 16 is a good example. There's a woman by the name of Lydia who hears Paul preach the gospel. She responds in faith. By the way, it says that Lydia was a seller of purple cloth. That means that she was wealthy. So this was a woman of means. She hears the gospel, responds in faith to the gospel, and then says, if you really consider me a true believer, then come to my home. They come to her home. We see later in the chapter that when Paul and Silas are led out of prison in Philippi, that they go to the home of Lydia. Apparently a church started in her home. And so this woman becomes the, the, the meeting place for the church. Philippians 4, speaking of Philippians, chapter 2 and 3, or uh, chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, says, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. The New American Standard, which is a, a great literal translation, translates this as those who have shared in my struggle in the cause of the gospel. So contended at my side, shared at my struggle. These are obviously individuals who took a significant role in helping to promote and grow the early church. And they're, they're females. They're not the only ones. That sounds like a lot more than just staying home and having babies because of their inferior intellect, doesn't it? Romans 16, there are four women who are mentioned in Paul's personal greetings who he says they work very hard is the phrase. This is a, a, a verb that's used to describe the way Paul approached ministry, 
I mean, they, they're working hard uh, in the early church to, to grow the church. One other example, and there, there are others that we could talk about, but let me just give you one more because we're starting to run short on time here. Um, Priscilla and Aquila. Sometimes it's listed as Prissa, other places Priscilla. Um, Acts chapter 18, verse 26 is talking about a guy by the name of Apollos who was speaking in the name of the Lord, but he, wasn't, he didn't really fully understand. In Acts 18, 26 says, He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. So Priscilla and her husband Aquila both were part of discipling Apollos teaching, they were significant in that role. And many commentators would say the fact that Priscilla's name is mentioned first actually might indicate that she was kind of the, the primary one and, and even the one that, uh, that, that, that was more significant in that process. So um, women, all that to say, we see throughout the Bible that women take a, a very, very important role. So yes, let's draw the line where we believe Scripture draws the line. And you can dive into that further. In fact, by the way, uh, if you're interested in this, we, I put sermon notes uh, in the, the little Bible app. You can access that through the Bible app or through the website um, and, and get to that. But I, I have some further, kind of for further study types of articles and things. If you're interested in diving further into that, let me encourage you to do that because there's a lot more uh, that, that you can pursue. But bottom line is just this. Based on our understanding of Scripture, we believe that elders and senior pastors should be roles filled by men and that women should be involved uh, in a lot of other ways in leading out in the church. And so um, let's just kind of leave it at there. That's, that's as much time as we have to go into, but I just want to encourage you in this. Those of us that, men, let's, let's, let's take that responsibility to serve and to lead out. But women, please hear me on this. You don't need to sit in the background, okay? You don't just need to feel like you're, you know, you're, you're, you're relegated to some type of inferior role because the church in the early days desperately needed and, and relied upon uh, the involvement and leadership of women, and, and, and we feel the same way. And that's a necessary thing in order for us to do that. We simply want to ask the question, how has God designed us to work together? Let's, let's work together the way He designed it, and, and then we'll be in good shape if we do that. All right, let's pray together. Lord, this, this is such an important but a difficult uh, topic for us to fully understand and, and wrap our minds around. But I pray for your wisdom and, and your guidance, Lord. And more than anything, we just pray that the body of Christ um, here reflects both men and women coming together just to, to, to work together and to share the gospel and to make the impact on this community that you want us to make. That's my prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.